On today's special episode of Survival Dispatch News, we're talking with ex-Navy SEAL Team 6 member, Don Mann. Hey guys, today's video is brought to you by Off Grid Trek. This is a huge Faraday bag. It's the biggest one we've ever seen at Survival Dispatch with 126 liter capacity to protect all your gear from that EMP. Is it here yet? <laughs> what? The EMP. I heard there's another Chinese spy balloon coming. Oh, geez. And we're back. Welcome to the channel, Don. Hey, Chris. It's nice to be here with you. I know you're a really busy guy, and we really appreciate you coming on the channel. Uh, you know, can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Oh, thanks, thanks. I'm really happy to be here with you. So I, I'd like to preface our conversation um, for our audience in, you know, Survival Dispatch Nation that uh, we're going to go through your history. But uh, as I mentioned in the opening, uh, SEAL Team 6 member, um, you know, the baddest of the badasses in the world, uh, true American hero. Really appreciate everything that you've done, Don. Really appreciate your service. And I know our audience is very focused on uh, appreciating our veterans. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. So speaking of which, um, let's jump right back, you know, in with your amazing background, Don. Uh, you know, where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit of background. Well, I grew up in uh, New England, mainly. Uh basically New Hampshire, Maine, uh, Rhode Island, those areas up there in New England. And um, I went to school, high school in Connecticut. And I went to one year in college, one year to college in Connecticut. And I didn't have the maturity or and or I had too much energy, probably both to sit there in college for another year. I couldn't take it. So I joined the military. And uh, my father is a real patriot. He's a World War II patriot. Wow. And he believed God, country, family. And he instilled that in the, his children, the four of us. It was God, country, family. And he, he was very, very proud of his service. And the day we were attacked by the Japanese, he quit high school and he joined the Navy. And right. his brothers and his sisters all joined the military. So they had four stars on their door growing up, the parents, my grandparents, and uh, whenever there was a military service uh, incident or a funeral or anything, you'd see tears going down his eyes. He was a real patriot. And then he uh, went to the VFW and DMV, and he was commander of those posts. So uh, he he's the one who who put the patriotism in me. And when I wanted to leave college, I needed I wanted to join the military. I I felt an obligation to our country, and I was just going to do two years with the Marines and then get out. And I wasn't very impressed with the Marine recruiter, probably the only Marine recruiter that a young kid wouldn't be impressed by. <laughs> I went next door to the Navy, and I was very impressed by that recruiter. And he told me about the SEAL teams. And that day changed my life and set my life on a path that I was very, very fortunate to be on for the rest up till now, all these years later. I'm still, because of that path I was on, it, it guided the rest of my life. And that that's a, that's amazing, Don. Um, one of our influences on our channel, uh, Tyler White. He's a recruiter for Special Forces. He's in Utah, oh, and awesome. he he served in Special Forces uh, and spe Special Forces. And what's the other one? Is it Special? Uh, uh, there's Recon Force, Recon Special Forces, the Rangers, Delta Force. 
He's, he's been in two of them. I, I I think it's like special ops and special forces, maybe yeah, something. Special like operations, that. yeah. Yeah, he's a communications expert, but he this guy has got the most enthusiastic energy, and uh, he has just done a phenomenal job recruiting young people in an extremely uh, you know difficult time to recruit young people. You know, the focus isn't there like it was when we were kids. He's the he's just what we need now to to motivate young kids to want to be back in the military. It's the worst time ever in recruitment in our country's history. Mainly, I think it started with Kabul and the disaster withdrawal in Kabul. But it's been a disaster ever since. And the news makes it all the worse, as you know. Yeah, um, he sends me videos periodically of working with some of these recruits. And he's always, you know, ends the text by saying, uh, these young people are restoring my faith in humanity. So that's nice to hear. Yeah, it it is. It's really cool stuff. So that's interesting that the recruiter, though, is the one who kind of drew you into the Navy world. So explain the process of getting into the SEALs. So is it something you apply for or you get handpicked for it? It's a little different now, and it's a little easier now once you pass the qualification selection methods. As a matter of fact, to go full circle, when I was uh, getting ready to retire from the SEAL teams, we were having a hard time getting people in the SEAL teams. And um, we were having a hard time people to get into BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School. And our Admiral, Admiral Smith, who was a friend of mine, he asked me, he said, Don, come up with some event to try to increase the recruitment into SEAL team. Because the Marines have the Marine Corps Marathon, the Army's got this Army 10-miler race, a huge, huge running race. But the Navy, the SEAL teams, didn't really have an event to attract to the, the mainstream public. So I came up with an event called SEAL Adventure Challenge, and that went on for a good 15 years. And it got people, civilians, into this training I produced for them. And they, they got a feel for what Hell Week would be like and what training would be like. But we had a hard time getting people into the SEAL teams up until... Um, bin Laden was killed. Yeah. When bin Laden was shot, boom, made the news, made big news. And then the lines to get into buds was long. But Chris, it's kind of funny because when I was in, it, it was a long process. You have to beg and, and, and just like plead with the, your leaders. Let me take the test to go to buds. I want to be a seal. I want to be a seal. And they said, no, why didn't you go do this here? Why don't you do something different? Now, if you want to be a SEAL, you can pretty much check a box. I'm going to want to be a SEAL. You still have to do your PRT, the physical readiness test, the SEAL qualifications and everything they have. But you're, you're assisted through that now. And you're assisted with the administrative process to get through, which is much better than it used to be when I came through. But now we are still having the same issue. We recruit from all the colleges. Everybody knows about SEAL Team now, um, the SEAL training with all the movies and books written about it. But we'll still get a couple hundred people to start a class uh, at the, the the far end. And then it whittles down, whittles down, third phase, second phase, third phase. You know, it starts getting the people down. And you'll still graduate with a class of 20 to 24 people. And um, what's interesting now, Chris, this is it's almost hard for me to comprehend you know, a SEAL started with John F. Kennedy started in the 60s, and it was small units, groups of four or five or seven men going behind enemy lines and, and, and working in the jungles in Vietnam 
and blown up the obstacles. Even before that, the underwater demolition teams in Normandy. And then John F. Kennedy wanted these people who can do all this stuff in the water and be really good underwater to be able to come up on land and do missions on land. So the SEALs were created. And there were always small units, small groups. But now with this big Russia and China threat, now everything's changing. Now the, the SEAL teams, the seven-person squad or the 14-person platoon or 30-man assault team, they're all getting bigger and bigger and bigger to um, confront what's coming up with China and Russia. So everything's changing. And we need more and more people all the time. And uh, the Kabul disastrous withdrawal really hurt our military. And um, the SEALs still have a very, very good image. And there's a lot of great things happening in the SEAL community that people find out about. But military overall, the numbers are down. And in SEALs, we, we're trying not to lower the standards. We want a lot of people through there. We don't want to lower the standards, but we still get in 20, 25 people passing a, a class. Uh, some I don't I can't speak to the veracity of it. Excuse me, but somebody recently said to me that out of the 1.6 million active duty military, somewhere around 75,000 actually have combat experience. So again, I don't know if that's a real number or not, but if it is, that's pretty striking. Excuse me. I believe that to be true, mainly because we've had two full-scale wars for the last 20 years. And um, basically, everybody in the military, most people in the military have, have done a tour over there now, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. And in the SEAL community, we're in, the SEALs are in over 90 countries right now, things yeah. you don't hear about. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure what we hear of is just a small fraction of what's actually going on. Um, I was at a conference many, many years ago, and the person leading this breakout session was discussing working with executive teams. I've been in business development almost my entire career. And he had had this concept, uh, which came from the book, uh, Good to Great, that uh, when you're working with a team of executives, it should be seven or less people. And he called them a Mars team, because if you were going to go to Mars, you'd pick your, your seven best people, seven best astronauts sort of thing. And somebody asked why seven or less. And I can't remember all of the things that he said, but essentially it was something along the lines of survival teams are typically seven or less people. And once you get over seven people, you end up, you know, many times with too many chiefs, not enough Indians, uh, that sort of stuff. I mean, so I just listened to you say these small groups of SEALs, you know, four, five, six, seven people. It's kind of interesting that you use the same numbers because obviously you know a lot more on the subject than I do. But is that kind of your experience, you know, when you're working with teams? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, a seven-man squad gels. You're tight. You're really, really tight with a seven-man squad. Even when it goes up to 30, divisions can take place where maybe half of it sees things a little bit differently than the other half and you can see a little rift develop but what we liked about the seal teams is when you have the small units you're pretty much all thinking basically the same but when you get to the big mass big army big you know the big 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 footprints when you come overseas and you have thousands of people there it's just like society almost. Everybody has a different mindset on what, what they should be doing and what life is all about and what the mission is. There's so many different subcategories besides just being in a war zone, knowing we have a threat here. 
But if you're in there with a seven-person team, you're pretty much all of the same mindset. You kind of gel to the same mindset, but it's impossible to do with large, large groups of people. Yeah, that makes well, that makes a lot of sense, Don. Um, and it's, I appreciate your comments on that. So let's just go back in time. Um, did you have to apply to be a SEAL or did you get chosen? And how crazy was the qualification process back then? Well, when I came in and um, I, I went right to boot camp and the first thing I told them, you know, a teenager who knows nothing, I said, I want to be a SEAL. And I took the test and I somehow passed the test. Right on. Um, the test wasn't crazy hard, really. It was swimming, running, pull-ups, you know, sit-ups and push-ups. And, and I, I was training and I, I was fit enough to pass that test. And then boot camps, two months, boot camp, Navy boot camp, you learn to fold clothes, iron clothes, polish your shoes, and learn about Navy traditions. It's not physically demanding in any way at all. Okay. So what I had to do when I was in the Navy, uh, when I was in boot camp, I knew I had to train over after hours. So I <clears throat> I picked the number 1,000. And, and you'll appreciate this being the fitness guru you are. Um, I never, ever got to any place like you are. But, um, well, everything you've done in your life. Oh, in this, and you, you don't uh, want to because I broke my body. So. <laughs> but I would pick uh, the number of thousand and after we we're done boot camp chores and everything and everybody was ironing their clothes and studying for the test and the next day, I would do a thousand of something. One day would be a thousand jumping jacks. One day would be a thousand pushups. One day I'd get under the bunk beds, do a thousand uh, bunk, uh, bunk bed presses, you know, sets of 20 and sets of 25. But I would do this to one or two in the morning. One day I do a thousand sit-ups all day long. That's and amazing. I did a thousand of something every single day, and then one day I measured all the little tile blocks in the floor, and I measured how I counted how many there were in our boot camp uh, birthing area, where seventy or eighty of us were in there, and I counted them all, and I went on my first long run, and I ran three hundred laps inside, and I did something like seventeen miles my first run because. Um, but every day I did something in boot camp. I couldn't wait to be a SEAL. Only thing in my life that mattered was to be a SEAL. So when I got out of boot camp, I was fitter than, than uh, you could possibly really train to be at that point. I went and I went to our core school as a, as a medic. So we call it core school, hospital corpsman. Okay. And as soon as I checked in there, I said, well, I don't really want to be here. I want to be a SEAL. They said, well, the SEALs don't want anybody until you have a skill or a rate, we call it in the Navy. So I went to corpsman school, and I couldn't wait to be a combat medic. As soon as I graduated, I went right down to Coronado, and I said, I want to be a SEAL. And they said, well, we need some medics. We're low on medics in corpsman. Uh, and I see your scores here. I took the PT score, the PT test again, and I did better the second time, passed it the first time, but... <laughs> And they said, yeah, we need people like you. We need motivated people. But the Navy at that time said, you can't just get out of corpsman school and go to SEAL team. They want experienced corpsmen. So I had to go to the hospital for a while and work, but I learned a lot of useful skills, you know, emergency room and intensive care unit and going on ambulance runs. And I, I, uh, 
I did my split my time between the hospital and serving with the Marine Corps because we had a choice then serve with the Marine Corps as a medic or be on a ship as a medic. I said, well, I'll go with the Marines. But when I went with the Marine Corps, I had to go to a five week medic school, combat medic course. And then I went to Okinawa for 13 months to serve as a Marine. I said, I don't really want to go to Okinawa. I want to go to SEAL training. They said, no, they sent you to this five-week medic course. You have to go to and serve with the Marines. But what they did, it was one of the best times of my life as an athlete, as a triathlete and a runner and a bike racer. Um, the Marines paid me to go all over the world to compete in races, competitions, and triathlons and, and marathons. So as a paid athlete, when as my time with the Marines, which even better prepared me to go to SEAL training. And then I finally said, okay, I did my time. Now I really, really, really want to go to BUDS. They said, no, why don't you stay with the Marines, be a recon, be force recon? I said, I appreciate you asking that, but I want to be a SEAL. So finally, that I had to go through that long process. Nowadays, you, you sign up, I want to be a SEAL, and they send you to, to your pre-screening that you can see if you can pass the test and all that. And if you can, they send you right to BUDS. So it's a lot easier now in that aspect. Man, that's 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 fascinating. So, you know, speaking of all this training and whatnot, and and you mentioned that you put together some training for other people, you know, that was in place for fifteen years or so. Um, I read that you trained some of the SEALs in SEAL Team Six that took out Osama bin Laden. Um, <clears throat> how much of, of was it? Fifteen years total that your program ran, or was it fifteen years of you actually training SEALs yourself? I, I trained, well, <clears throat> so what happened, every weekend I was basically helping people trained who wanted to become SEALs. And I pushed them hard. I had these weekend sessions set up. And when Admiral Smith asked me if I would help with a recruitment program to come up with some type of program that can help be bigger scale than what I was doing, um, I went to Maryland for a meeting and uh, they wanted to be a big TV production. Uh, really get it out there in the media to try to recruit SEAL um, programs. So I went to Maryland. I had an idea. I told them about what I was doing on weekends. Um, I said, yeah, this is what I can do. I can make it bigger. They said, well, <clears throat> yeah, we can we can make this happen. We need the word. We need a name for this. So you have to come up with something. It has to be like an adventurous name and something very challenging. But the word SEAL has to be in it. I said, what about SEAL Adventure Challenge? They said, that is brilliant. Very <laughs> odd. <laughs> so it was called a SEAL Adventure Challenge. I ran that for about 15 years. And um, the best part about that, Chris, was got these young, young guys coming through. Some of their goals would be to be an admiral of the SEAL team. Some of their goals were to be uh, a combat uh, leader. And then getting letters years later, I'm on my second tour in Iraq. I'm on my second tour in Afghanistan. Um, it, it's nice. To, some of the lessons I learned from your earlier training, you know, I've been able to pass them on and I build upon them. But um, we've had SEAL commanders and SEAL admirals send their sons to my training. And and we, we felt really, really good about what we were putting out. It, it was very, very difficult for the guys. Yeah, uh, I mean that's an amazing feather in your cap, Don. Um, you know, a little bit later in the interview, we'll get to discussing your TV show, Surviving Man. But um, your background in training other people kind of 
just set some light bulbs off for me after watching the first season and the, the premiere for the second season last night. So speaking of, you know, reading uh, on your background, I also saw that you were captured by the enemy. Um, I didn't get into all the details of it. Is that something you could describe? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I can't go in real detail on it, but I can tell you the generalities of what happened. We were um, in the Middle East and we we're working with some Egyptian counterparts and uh, they were showing us some of their skills. And we we're showing them some of our skills. And they were the Egyptian equivalent of SEALs. They right. didn't have the training we had. They were much, much less trained. But they were the Egypt, Egypt's, you know, equivalent. And um, they were showing us how they eat snakes and frogs. And, and they would take these snakes, poisonous snakes, venomous snakes and frogs, and hit them on the boot peel the skin back, take the venom sacs out and eat the snake. And we did this with them. So we ate a bunch of snakes. We ate a bunch of frogs. What they didn't know is we had a mission to do later on during that visit, that deployment. <clears throat> and um, But we all got pretty sick right after we ate these snakes and frogs. And um, we had food poisoning. And that happened right before our flight down to a country where we had to do a reconnaissance mission. So four of us deployed out to another country. Uh, it was just a quick in and out type thing. It lasted just over a week. And uh, we're in a helicopter. We dropped the rubber boat into the water. We're all sick as can be. Oh. They said, stay out of the water. It's infested with sharks. It's infested with sharks. But that's where the mission started in the water. And what the Arabs would do is they had all these camels and they would uh, kill all the camels, get the entrails out, the intestines and everything, and throw them in the water. And that's why there were sharks all over there. So <clears throat> jumped in the water, got our inflatable boat inflated as quickly as we could, jumped in the boat because pitch black, we knew there were sharks all over. And we motored up to shore about a half a mile from shore. And we're just keeping low. And we're looking at the shoreline, making sure there wasn't any enemy activity there. And we came up a couple hundred meters away from the beach line. And my buddy and I jumped off the boat. And we swam to the beach, worried about the sharks, of course. And we had to find a place to lay up for three days and to um, get our reconnaissance, surveillance of a shipyard and of the airport. We wanted to track how many people were coming in and out by air and by ship and just get all the, the vessels, everything we could get, everything recorded, the enemy activity, anything we could come up with. So <clears throat> we went up on shore looking for a place where we could hide out for three days. And the only place we could find was if we dug a hole in, in this little section of land that had water on three sides of it. So we went in the middle, we called the other two people over that came up, we quickly dug a hole to bury our boat and the motor and the gas and the things we didn't need for the mission. And we buried that with sand. And then we had to do this before daylight, but we were as sick as can be. And uh, we had to dig the other hole for us to sit in, for the four of us to be in. And we dug that hole. We had our rucksacks and had our weapons. And there's a bad, bad sandstorm going on. We had goggles on. And we covered our hole with a, a desert uh, sand colored camouflage blanket so okay. we were under this hole we had our weapons and now the sun's starting to come up and we're as sick as can be and we could see the airport the airstrip we could see any air traffic coming and going 
And over here, we could see the ships, the ship traffic, you know, record the people, and we're, we're doing our work as sick as can be. The problem was we started throwing up, and we had to throw up in that little hole and urinate in the hole and defecate, and, and, and everything was, we were living in sewage. And then it got worse because at high tide, the hole filled with water. Oh, so we're up to our chest, necks, and sewage. Nobody complained. I was so happy to be with these guys. I mean, we're getting all the photos, everything we needed from the two places we're doing the reconnaissance. And um, as sick as can be, I tried getting IVs in the three guys. I got IVs in those three guys, and they tried getting one in me. And I was the medic. I, was, I know how to start an IV. Yeah. They had medical training, but they weren't super experienced at starting IVs. They put like 15 holes in my arm. It's just a bad infection. Oh, We're just so hungry. We weren't drinking. We weren't eating. We're throwing up, vomiting, defecating all over the place, living in our sewage, but we're getting our work done. And um, and we had one more day, and then this person started walking across the desert with all that African clothes he had on, just blown in the wind, and it was a terrible sandstorm. We had our goggles on, but our ears were filled with sand, our noses were filled with sand, and this guy was walking up to where we were hidden in the hole in the sand, and we were wondering, what's he doing? We had our weapons, and uh, he gets closer and closer and closer to the hole, and he notices something's wrong, and his eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger. And he looked at us, and he sees four people with beards, long hair, and glasses with weapons pointed up at him. And he looked down, he put his hands up, and he ran off. Our story is much better than what happened to Marcus Luttrell when he was caught by the goat herder on top of the hill. But what happened here is he ran off, and the same rules of engagement. He wasn't a threat. We couldn't take him out. We couldn't tie him up. We couldn't pull him in the hole with us. We let him go. But we knew he was going to get reinforcements. So at that point, we did our very best to get out of there as quickly as we could. He ran off. We knew he was going to a village. And we got the shovels, little uh, shovels, quickly tried to dig out the boat, try to inflate the boat. And this is all early morning before it was light. And then 14 or so of his people came over the hill with AKs, scared to death, fingers all in the triggers, pointing at us. And one of the guys with us says, guys, put your hands up. We'd never heard of that before. And uh, we looked over, and these guys were coming over the hill. And we could have grabbed our weapons, and the four of us shot at 14 of them who already had the weapons trained on us. We would have been slaughtered. We could have jumped in the water, and they would have just sprayed us, and we would have been slaughtered. So we did our only thing we could do. We put our arms up, and they circled us around, around us, with the weapons pointed at our chest and our heads. They were scared to death. They never saw people like us before. And we were scared too. I'm not gonna say we weren't scared, but I would say they were way more scared than we were. They were. They had the fingers on the trigger. I thought it'd just be an accidental shooting, an accidental discharge if somebody shot at us. Because I didn't think they would shoot at us in person because the rounds would go through us into them because they had right. us in the circle. And so we had our hands up in the middle of the circle and we had these little fake CIA cards, get out of jail free cards, we call them, with Arabic writing saying, hey, if you happen to catch these guys or see these guys, they're only training. You know, they were fake cards. Oh, man. And my friend went to go reach for his from his rucksack, and they put four AKs right up against his head, and we thought for sure they were going to blast him, and they didn't. So then they were yelling, down, 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 in broken English. 
get on the grounds. We shoot you in the backs for trespassing. We said, no, we're going to go in this boat. We go back home, back to the United States, America, yelling, down, down, we shoot you in the backs. And they got an interpreter. They sent someone back to the village to get someone who could speak English, broken English. And he said to us, he said, now the sun's coming up. It's daylight. He said, you trespassed on our land uh, with the penalty. We're going to shoot you. We said, no, we're going back in that boat. We're going back to where we came from. We're just here for training. You know, our story. Yeah. Um, This went back and forth. For some reason, I can't speak for the other three guys, but I can say how I thought and how I really think they thought. We all knew we weren't going to get killed. We all knew we were going to get away. We just our mindset was so powerful and so positive that combat mindset we're going to win. We didn't have weapons. They had fourteen weapons around us, and we kept saying, "No, we're not going to go on the ground. We're going to get in our boat and we're going to go home." And finally, they said, "Go." They let us go. We got in that boat. We went out at sea, throwing up all that. We haven't eaten a drink water for a long time, and we were all t- we were all thinking, "Okay, the mission's over," and. Um, but it wasn't. We still had part of the mission to do. We had to go do a, a demolition, a blast after a dive. And, um, you know, a lot of people would have quit at that point thinking, OK, we're done. We are so lucky yeah. to get our life. We came back and finished the mission and we won and they lost. And um, it was it was survival in one sense, because, you know, we, we weren't eating or drinking, but you had to know emergency medicine. You had to know you needed shelter. We had our shelter, which was a hole. What we didn't have is our food or water. But most importantly in survival, you always hear about shelter, food, and water. What we had that saved our lives was a mindset. The mindset is we're going to prevail. We're going to win. We're not going to die. We're not, you know, if we get hurt, we'll recover. And we had the right mindset. And if we didn't have the right mindset, you know, it could have all gone bad. And. Uh, I mean, that's an amazing story, Don. And, you know, I grew up in the construction industry before I went into the business world. And somebody at some point in time when my younger years said, you are what you think. And every time that we brought new people on, say, a framing crew, if they thought they were going to fall off a wall or fall off a roof, they did every single time. And, And that stuck with me for many years. And then, of course, I spent, you know, decades in the gym training and competing and when you're prepping for something like a powerlifting meet, it, it's 12 weeks. And so over the course of the 12 weeks, you're basically increasing the range of motion, uh, increasing the weight, uh, decreasing the number of reps. Because at the end of the day, it's it's like a one rep max. Realistically, over 12 weeks, nobody's going to gain a tremendous amount of strength who's already fit. You know, maybe somebody who's not fit would they get that, you know, big initial jump. But probably the most powerful part of all of that was visualizing for an entire week. OK, this week I'm going to press this much weight off of three boards. And then the following week, it's OK, I'm going to press this much weight off of two boards and continuing to increase the range of motion. And I can't tell you how many times by the time you get to a world championship, you're preparing for something like that. You've visualized it thousands of times. It's all that you think about, right? I mean, you you go to bed, you can't sleep because you're thinking about it. You wake up, you know, you can't concentrate on anything else because you're thinking. It's it's all consuming. Absolutely not even close to the experience you just described. But I... I, well, I don't know. You became a world champion. What's the most you ever bench pressed? 
Uh, well, in a competition, 638 in the gym, just a hair under 700 pounds. At 180 pounds? Uh, it was 198. At, 198. Okay. Yeah. It's all in, it, it's all in kilograms. So, you know, 90 kilograms would be 198.4 pounds. But uh, as as we discussed previously, I'll tell you what, it's a great way to destroy your body. Um, I've had 32 surgeries under general anesthesia. Um, I retired as a, a master's uh, competitor on the national powerlifting team because I blew my abdominal wall out. And that started a whole cascading effect of, of bad things. So, Well, you look in incredible shape still. I'm in terrible shape right now, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. So, uh, again, and nowhere near as interesting as, as your background or, and nothing special, you know, the, so I grew up in the seventies and eighties and, um, actually started going to the gym because of Sylvester Sloan and Rambo. We went and saw Labor Day weekend, 1982 at a drive-in theater. And I was a, a freshman, 125 pounds soaking wet. And I said to all my buddies, I'm going to look like Sylvester Sloan. They were like, yeah, sure you are. The if he got bigger and stronger. <laughs> the following August, I walked into a, you know a football camp as a sophomore at 210 pounds, and I, so I had this lifelong battle in my mind of I, I want to look really good, but I want to be the strongest guy pound for pound in the room, and so that's kind of what led to all this litany of injuries and whatnot. But why one of the reasons that I thrived on competing was Rocky Four, you know. Mm -hmm. and Drago versus Sylvester yes. Stallone. And in 2014, um, I beat the seven-time Russian national champ by over 200 pounds. He was the bronze medalist. He wouldn't even come on stage to get his medal. And, you know, being an immature 45, 46-year-old at the time, all I could think of was Rocky IV. And I had my Hulk Hogan Real America pants on that I'd had since the 1980s. <laughs> it was... It, it, just a crazy mindset that, you know, in the grand scheme of things means absolutely nothing. Uh, just a little piece of my legacy, I guess. But back to you, because your story is way more interesting and way more important to our country. Um, so overall, how many years were you in the Navy? 21. Wow, that that's amazing, Don. I mean, 21, I, and then I went to work with the government right after. So I've got about 45, 46 years in now, military and government. Wow, that, that's um, it's the same thing. I just want to stay connected and be part of the big national security threat we're facing and we have always been facing. And now, now, you know, I, I, I firmly believe today's the most dangerous day this world has ever had. Um, tomorrow would be more dangerous. So I just I just feel the need to want to to do my little part and help him however I can. And to help others uh, prepare for, you know, the, the, the world keeps getting more and more dangerous, as we all know. But every day is a little bit more dangerous. And we've never been so close to having so many disasters that can possibly happen with the nuclear threat, big time nuclear threat. You know, China taking over Taiwan, Russia threatening with their weapons, nuclear weapons, now North Korea and Iran with their weapons and all these nuclear uh, all these countries now that have nuclear weapons, many of them hate us. Yeah. And they're crazy leaders, you know, these authoritative dictators. Um, we are facing some serious challenges ahead. And, and I, you know, it doesn't keep me awake at night because um, we can only do what we can do. But 
I think it's all our responsibility is to be prepared and, and prepare those who we love and care for and people we live with and help them not to not to make them panicky or paranoid, thinking, oh, my God, there's going to be some, some cyber threat or nuclear attack on us. But just if it happens, this is what I'm going to do and just have a nice, relaxed, peaceful mindset about it. Something goes wrong. I'm, I'm going to be okay. And my family's going to be okay because I'm prepared. And it doesn't, it's not that, it's not that time consuming or that hard to be prepared. It's really kind of a fun skill set to develop. Well, and I can only imagine it at your skill level that situational awareness is probably, you know, front and center for you all the time. And, uh, you know, we preach that as well. Uh, Jason Sawyer, one of our uh, top influencers, was a strength and conditioning coach, as I mentioned, at USC. And then he trained some Navy SEALs, strength and conditioning. Um, he's he's fond of saying that there are multiple different levels of SHTF. So, for example, if, if you're at the gas station, let's say, and it gets held up while you're there, well, that's an SHTF event, but it's not the same as a nuclear war. You know, there's all these different levels. And, you know, the importance of being aware of your surroundings, especially at gas stations. Uh, I have an acquaintance of mine who's won multiple world championships, uh, sits on the board uh, for the International Strength Federation. And uh, he has an entire series of videos and books called Gas Station Ready, uh, because if you're likely to be assaulted, that's probably one of the top places. Um, it's so amazing to hear you say that, because in the last three years, Three times I've come close to a confrontation at a gas station. And I live out in the mountains. I don't live near people. But when I've gone near the cities, one time I was in line paying, and there's this guy behind me just staring down at me, and I knew his potential threat. I walked out, and he followed me. Of course, I had a weapon, and he followed me. He just followed me, and I didn't let on that I was – aware of him following me, but I knew I had a weapon in my vehicle and I had a weapon on me and I was thinking, okay, if this goes bad, he's, he's going to try to rob me and I'm not going to reach for my wallet. I'm going to reach for my weapon and it's going to be policed to come get the report. The second time, um, the second time I was at another gas station, I was waiting and some guy said, I hate white people. And I was the only white person in the gas station and he looked at me and I was thinking now I'm in trouble I'm in trouble right now and when he walked out the security guard who was a black man said I don't know why people have to be like that I said I don't either I don't either he said I don't see color I said I don't either it's just I don't know why people have to be like that but there are people like that but the last time was the worst time and I was filling up my tank with gas and this big guy comes up, goes, man, I want some money. I said, I don't have any money. I use credit cards. And he, he looked down at me. He's, he's about a foot taller than me. And I just positioned myself. So I had my vehicle block the engine to protect me from shooting. And I know to reach for my weapon. But when you're so trained and you prepare your mind, you knew, okay, I've got I've got security. I got I got cover and concealment if I need it. I have an engine block and I have a weapon. I'm gonna let him move first. And if he does, I take cover and I fire back. I wasn't afraid. I knew I had the up on him because of what I knew up here. And I knew he was gonna lose if he was gonna try something. 
So I looked at him. I said, I don't have any money. I use credit cards. And he came closer. So I walked on my side of the vehicle and I had the vehicle between us and I was ready for action. And I'm glad it didn't happen, but he would have lost for sure. And I would have won for sure. And but if I didn't know those things, if I was another person who didn't train my mind over the years, I could have um, given him money and maybe have been robbed. I could have, you know, back talked to him and maybe been shot. A lot of things could have happened. But just by, like you just said, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of what can happen to you and having a plan. And Jeff Cooper said it best, you know, with the color codes. If you're white in the white color, if you're white, it means you're totally unaware of your surroundings. You might be listening to headphones. You might be listening to music. You might not even know who's around you. And that's a deadly place to be. If you're in the yellow, if you're in the yellow, these are conditions. If you're in the yellow condition, you feel, well, yeah, this is a bad part of town. Maybe I should be a little bit of aware, but you don't have that much awareness going on. You're just slightly aware something could happen. And then if you go to the orange, it might be, yeah, I'm being fallen out of this garage. What's going on? My my awareness heightens. My sense of um, a threat could be possibly coming up on me. It's all heightening. Now I'm in the orange. I better start thinking of a plan. And if you've gone through these scenarios in your head over and over enough, that plan comes quickly. Okay, I've got a vehicle here. I've got wheel blocks. I've got a motor to protect me from bullets oncoming. And I have a weapon. And... Um, and but when you go into red is fight or flight or freeze. And that's when you have to take action, take action. And it's your life or, or, or the, you know, you, you're facing down the threat. And black, the black condition is you just freeze. And when you're in white or black, they're both deadly conditions. You're going to you're going to lose. But if you can escalate from yellow to orange to red and you're not in a constant state of paranoia, you're just aware of your surroundings. You're looking in your rearview mirrors. You're sitting at a restaurant. You don't have a ton of people behind you. You might have your back to the wall. So you can see the doors. You can see people. But you're not worried. You're just aware. And um, and then have a plan. So if you have to enact that plan, boom, it just goes into place. And you make the plan. And it's fight or flight. And, and animals do it. We're, we're, we're part of the animal species. That's how we survive. You have you can't walk around in white and not be prepared or or, or not be aware of your surroundings. Or, or animals or humans don't survive that way. And if you're totally shocked because someone comes flying through a door and you have no idea what can happen because you didn't anticipate something like that could happen, you go in the black and freeze. Animals wouldn't survive that, and we wouldn't survive it. So, to have what Jeff Cooper coined. The, the conditions, mindset, the mindset conditions to be able to go from yellow to relaxed alertness to orange to a little bit more alertness because it could be a threat to red to have your plan, act on your plan, fight or flight. And, you know, it's best to de-escalate and try to get away from the threat if you can, if that's the best thing. But if you can't, you have to fight it out and have a plan for it. And you don't need a gun to fight it out. Best defense could be a cell phone and and a, a engine block, like, you know, a, the motor yeah. and just knowing or or being if you're being followed down the road and, you know, you look in right mirror, left mirror, you say, oh, I'm going to take a right. Oh, this guy's following me, especially for women. This guy's following me. 
go toward a bank or go some someplace with the security cameras so they can get them on camera. They don't like being around cameras. But just think of these things and uh, just have a plan. And um, I, I have done this for a number of people, you know, especially women. And they said, you know, I'm a single woman. I live alone. I've got kids or my husband's away all the time and I don't have a gun. To tell you the truth, if they don't have a gun and they want to go buy a gun, I, I, I tell them, I said, guns are great if you know how to use them. And if you know how to store them and if you know how to keep them, but you have to be trained if you have a gun. And if you if you don't plan on training yourself and just want to go through this one or two day course and put the gun away and never use it again, you know, it's a perishable skill. You have to stay trained on it. I suggest getting a can of wasp spray and your front door is over here. If an intruder comes in, go through it in your mind a few times. You have that wasp spray or mace or anything like that. And you know that door, if that's going to open, it's not going to be somebody who's supposed to be in your house. If you know that, you have cover from the door frame. Pick up the wasp spray, spray it in the person's eyes. Now that person can't do anything else. You could pick up your cell phone and leave. And just little things like that, even if you don't have a weapon, you can, you can, and you can have a safe area in a house safe area for evacuation, S-A-F-E, but a safe area in your house where you can hide out. But just to have these plans and having a go bag, a go bag in your car. If something happened to me in my vehicle, I've always have an emergency medical kit there. I've got a compass air, GPS, and a weapon. Uh, my go bags in my vehicle all the time. I have one in my house that's bigger. And, um, you know, this is all good stuff you learn in living in war zones because you have to bail out quickly. But with the world moving in the direction it's moving now, why not be prepared in your house, in your vehicle now? We don't need it right now, but it's better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it, as we say. Yeah, I mean, you, you tweaked me on a number of things here. Um, you know, we, we discuss the importance of grab-and-go bags all the time. And in most scenarios, uh if there was a, you know, a significant event like 9-11, you know, they're probably going to strike us again at morning rush hour, afternoon rush hour, maximum chaos. And if there is an EMP, you know, whether it's an EMP attack or a nuclear generated EMP and you're not at ground zero, but, you know, all electronics are dead. Um, average American works 16 miles from home. What's your plan to get home? And if, you know, you describe like a home invasion scenario, we have a, a free document on our website. If you just click on store at the top, uh, the very first option is home defense plan. So it's a bunch of stuff for people to put their plan together. And we've had this stuff ourselves, meaning our family for years, that if if something happens, we have an intruder. I want to know where everybody is in my family so that I'm not shooting through a wall and hitting somebody in our family. So um, being prepared, whether it's like, a theater of war like you've been in whether it's at a gas station whether it's in your home heck even if it's going to the gym if you can get to the point where it becomes second nature i mean a couple of times you've mentioned things where you essentially fell back on your training mm -hmm. and i've said it for years you know if you're like i play football of course and if I, uh, a linebacker seen the same play a thousand times you don't have to stop and think of where you should be 
Because if you need to stop and think, you're a half step behind. You can't get to the play. You're not in the play. So the value of repetition cannot, you know, emphasize just how important that is. And you're an even better example than I am. So let, let me give you an example that will probably resonate with you because it's particular to the Navy. So my brother-in-law has been a sheriff uh, for over 30 years, and he's served in every capacity from traffic cop to CSI and everything in between sort of thing. He's also been in the Navy for many, many years, and he was a Navy intelligence officer. Um, and that's all I know. Obviously, it's not something that he, he can discuss. But it, here's the, the uh, I guess, how ingrained repetitions become. So he was on a SWAT team for many years when he was a sheriff. So, you know, in CQB, when they're, you know, going into a house and there's a threat, they're trained to shoot immediately. You don't wait for the other side to take a shot at you, you, you know, because you're probably going to lose your life. And so when he was doing his Navy training and it was over in the sandbox, uh, they were doing these simulated, you know, CQB clearing rooms and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, whoever he was reporting into kept giving him shit and saying, you can't shoot that guy until they shoot you. And, and Bob's like, I'm not, I'm not walking into a situation, let somebody take a shot at me. I've been trained for years in the SWAT team for, to take out the threat. And it didn't turn into a bad deal between him and his, you know, uh, commanding officer, but he never could switch gears. If you know, like his, it was ingrained in him. It was second nature. If I go into a room and there's a threat pointing a gun at me, I'm going to shoot them, whether they shoot first or not. So um, he's told me, and I have another uh, acquaintance who was a, a Marine sniper for 23 years, and he was an E-9, so a sergeant major. Um, both him and my brother-in-law were extremely discouraged towards the end of their careers, where anytime they'd engage the enemy, that they immediately had to sit down with an attorney, essentially, and go step by step on everything that happened in this particular encounter. And, you know, God forbid that, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they stepped out of line not in our minds you know what i mean like a threat's a threat but right. more so stepping out of line from a you know politics standpoint i guess you could say just i, I can't get my head wrapped around because i've never been in that situation um you know but it's, it's so true what you're saying the rules of engagement that are written up by lawyers for the warriors fighting overseas there's a big disconnect for instance, um, you know, you can't shoot until you're shot at. That's the most ridiculous rule of engagement you can even imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, when you go into a room, close quarters battle, CQB, and you're blasting through a door, the enemy will typically pick up the weapons and they blast at the door. So you get away from the door, you move down the walls. And if somebody has a weapon up, you're trained, like your brother-in-law was trained so well, you're trained to shoot the threat because you have to shoot the threat or the threat is going to shoot you. It's just common sense. But if any lawyer or any rule maker tries to make a rule of engagement that you can't shoot till they shoot first, they are dead wrong. But unfortunately, there's sometimes people like that in the military and in civilian law enforcement try to put those rules in a place. I shouldn't get started on my, um, you know, on, on liberalism, what's in this woke stuff that's going on in our country. 
But I can say that of all the threats we faced in our country's history, I believe that liberal mindset, that those lawyers who think like that, this wokeness that's going on in our country, I believe that's the biggest threat our country has ever, ever, ever faced. And we have to we have to defend ourselves against those policies. If I had a 17-year-old son and he was going into a war zone and he was told, don't shoot till they shoot you first, I wouldn't want him in that war zone. Because that's that's a losing mentality. Okay, I'll let them shoot. If they shoot at me and they miss or just wound me, then I'll be able to shoot them. So crazy. But a lawyer might think like that back in a safe little office somewhere. Yeah, well, my brother-in-law basically summed it up as saying, you know, I'm the first man in and I'm going through the door and I'm in the fatal funnel and somebody has a gun trained on me. I have to take them out. There's a reason it's called the fatal funnel. At that point in time, you're committed. You know, you're inside the room. And to me, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, we could go down a huge rabbit hole on this wokeness stuff. I mean, um, I mean, I just make a couple quick comments. If you look at the educational systems in other countries, you know, China, North Korea, whatnot, um, their children are trained at a fairly young age to disassemble guns, clean them, reassemble them. And we're teaching kids that there's 300 different genders and, you know, baloney like that. And we've created a very uh, selfish, self-centered populace now. And uh, it's Denny Chapman and I just had a discussion this morning, you know, Denny. um, And we were exchanging some pictures from back in the 70s. And we both said, man, we just we didn't know how good we had it. We just didn't have a clue how good that we had it. So. So moving on from that, because we could be here, you know, until bedtime discussing the liberal mindset, and which I actually believe is a is a strategic move on the part of our foreign adversaries to divide us, divide and conquer. Right. So but we'll get off of that because we seriously could go down that rabbit hole for many hours. So after the Navy, uh, what motivated you to route the book inside SEAL Team 6? Well, boy, that was a, (laughs) um, I was asked, I've written, I've I've written other books. I've written survival books. I've written shooting books. And um, the first time I ever wrote a book, I didn't want to write a book because I don't like being inside. I don't like being on a computer. And I was teaching people how to do adventure racing, these big, long 10-day nonstop races. And I was racing in these 10-day races all over the world. And I was teaching people and I was producing these adventure races all over. And there was a politician, his name was Quentin Kidd, and he came up to me and says, Don, uh, you produce these races, you teach people to race, and you compete at the highest level in these races. Why don't you write a book on adventure racing? It hasn't been done yet. I said, I don't want to write a book. He says, come (laughs) on, you got to write the book. Someone's going to write the book. I said, I just don't want to write a book. So he said, how about if you just give me everything on recordings, you speak in recordings, okay, and I'll get someone to write it up for you. So we found Cara Charge, Chicago Sun-Times. And so the first book of adventure racing I, I wrote, and um, then I was done. And then I was working for the government and I was teaching weapons and tactics. And I had collected so much information on weapons, you know, all types of weapons. And, um, and then... 
um, a friend of my boss, actually, he said, Don, you have so much material on weapons. You should write a book. I said, Jimmy, no way am I writing another book. I don't want to write a book. <laughs> he says, come on, look at all the material. You don't even have to write it. It's all right here. Yeah. So I put the chapters, I sent it off to a publisher, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll write it, but you have way too much. If you can make it a third as much, that's fine. So I got rid of all the stuff on shotguns, all on long guns, and I just made a combat uh, defensive pistol. Okay. And so a lot of law enforcement use that military over the years. So my name was out there as an author. And then bin Laden was killed. And um, I was in the news here and there for different sporting events, doing these 10-day races. And um, and in these reports, you know, people knew I was SEAL Team 6. They knew I was a training officer, SEAL Team 6. And I knew I was an author. So I started getting offers from publication companies saying, you were the advanced training officer at SEAL Team 6. We would like you to write a book, and here's the big lump of money we'll give you. Big lump sum of money we'll give you. I said, I can't. I have a top secret clearance. I, I can't do that. They said, well, we just want to know how you train people to go in raids like Bin Laden's raid. Okay. I said, when you leave those doors and you retire, you don't give away those secrets. And yeah. I have a TS clearance. I'm going to keep it. They said, well, you're giving up a lot of money. A lot of other people are talking. I said, well, I'm not going to talk. Good for you. I got three offers, six digits, more than I've ever been paid. And I turned them all down. And then one, one publisher said, okay, we know what you're saying to the other people. What about if you give us your background as what you've done in the military and what you've done as an athlete? And I said, I'm not trying to sound humble or anything, but the things I've done in the military, the things you'll want to hear, I can't talk about. Um, and my career is not extraordinary compared to so many other people. And as an athlete, these big races I've done and climbing mountains and things, a lot of people have done that. My my story won't be that big or exciting. They said, yeah, we knew you'd say that too, but here's the figure we'll give you if you <laughs> give us an unclassified version. I said, only if I can send it to the P, uh, publication review board. So SEAL team reviews it, CIA reviews it, they bless it. And so I wrote a book, just an autobiography type book. Right. They said, now we need a title for the book. Give us some ideas. So I wrote down some ideas. They said, we don't like any of those ideas. What about <laughs> Inside SEAL Team 6? I said, no, it's not about Inside SEAL Team 6. They said, well, we could call it Inside SEAL Team 6. And it took me a while to think, do I want my book called Inside SEAL Team 6? Because I don't want people to think I'm giving away secrets. But um, it took me a while to deal with that title. And the title, I went with it. I went with it. And I knew it was reviewed by SEAL team and CIA and it was okay because it wasn't giving away any secrets, tactics, techniques, or procedures, or names of people. So I felt good. And I felt it was going to do people a lot of good and it's not going to do anybody any harm. So that's how I did that book. So uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, we surpassed a million words in the English language. And out of those million words, depending on whose you know thoughts you subscribe to, there's somewhere, say, around 175 power words. So words that evoke emotion. So, you know, the, the perimeter of the human brain, the neocortex uh, processes all forms of information, but has nothing to do with your feelings or decision making. That's all done at the center of the brain, the limbic brain. 
So if you can evoke emotion in people, um, it's much more interesting for them to carry on. So there's a bunch of studies that show things like a book title, a headline title, those sort of things really needs to be six words or less and needs to have at least one power word in it. And so they say if a headline is over or book titles over six words, people will grasp the first three and the last three words and anything in the middle is kind of lost on them. And that title and that headline has one purpose to get people to invest in reading on reading further sort of thing. So inside insider, you know, variations on that word is one of the 175 power words. And the fact that your title's like four words long, um, I can understand what the thought process was on the part of the publisher um, it's got a power word. It's short. It's like, Hey, yeah, I want to read the rest of this. And even though you weren't giving away secrets, it's still, in my opinion, and I'm just a, yeah, I'm a high school graduate. That's a, I don't have any post-secondary education. Um, it's a, it's a impressive title you know, from an attention grabbing perspective sort of thing. So, um, you've got this huge breadth of knowledge from, you know, traveling around the world, um, whether it be from an athletic perspective or professional perspective, you know, in, in the armed forces. So you've got uh, this wealth of geopolitical knowledge that, you know, I don't think anybody could have unless they've actually been to all of these different things and gone through some, some pretty crazy experiences. So if you have a minute, can you share your thoughts on like the current threats that we face, whether it be China, Russia, cyber attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, those sort of things? Sure. Um, boy, I, I, I do feel like I mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, we are facing the biggest threat in our existence, not just our lifetimes, but this planet's existence. Agreed. And we do have Iran and we have North Korea and we have the Middle East, which we don't even talk about anymore, but they're still a threat to us. And now we have China and Russia forming up an alliance of some sort. Their common enemy is us. And um, they have all the resources, fuel, oil, gas, uh, power. Now, now I, I'm so proud to say as in the world's largest Navy. Now I was in the world's second largest Navy. I mean, China has surpassing us. Every day they're surpassing us. Bigger army, bigger Navy, more rockets, more missiles. But with the mindset, the president of China is, he's he's focused on world domination. Mm. And they, they're calling him the most aggressive leader of all time. He wants domination of Mars and the planets as well. I mean, this guy has got a plan. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's got his problems at home, but he is set on changing the world order. And the U.S. is, in our opinion, the center right now. And we are we try to keep peace everywhere we go. I know we've been in a lot of wars and things and some were just and some maybe not just. But we pretty much um, do our best when there's a disaster or there's a problem. We're there to help. And that that is what the U.S. does. And um, China and Russia are agreed that they want to change that world order. They want to be the center of this world and not us. And so those two powers together with Iran and Korea and all these other um, countries and nations and state-sponsored terrorism uh, areas, they, they're our enemy. And they, they are telling us that we're their enemy. We're not declaring them an enemy. It's the other way around. 
So, and a lot of these countries have nuclear weapons. So for that reason, uh, I know our, our existence is at peril more so than ever in the history of the United States. And um, and it's not getting better. It just keeps getting worse. China is, you know, who knows what happened with COVID, the real story with COVID. I'm also worried about the fentanyl, the fentanyl coming across the border, these seizures that if, if they got to every single person in the United States, it could kill every single person in the U.S., why doesn't that even make the news? Why do we have open borders? I mean, how can we have an open border when we know people from every country in this world, all of our enemies coming across the border, trafficking children and women and selling us fentanyl, which is killing more people than any of the wars? For some reason, we are allowing that to happen. And as we all know, you know, the only way a country can be defeated is if it gets defeated from within, if the people within allow it to happen. I see us, our liberal far left side, allowing it to happen. We're allowing the borders to be open. We're allowing people to come across. We have people making up rules of engagements, like you say, our policies, what's going on in school, what being, what's being taught in school. I mean, we are we need a major shift. And it's like a giant aircraft carrier has to turn radical. And giant aircraft carriers can't turn radically right or left. But we have to do a radical turn. We have a big, big ship that's being run by people steering it to the far left that cuts, keeps putting us in more and more jeopardy. Because for some reason, the left side of our brain, of our country's brain, doesn't see a threat as a threat. They don't see it that way. And I and I don't I don't understand why. I know there's all types of people, all types of people think differently, but they're putting the existence of our country at risk more and more every day. Yeah. So I mean I turned off mainstream media over 20 years ago. I was one of the probably like the first wave of people who cut the cable, you know, sort of thing. And, and the reason I did it is because a friend of mine who's much smarter than I am, and he's an author too, just, you know, uh, and he's done some crazy adventure things like climbing uh, Mount Everest and stuff like that. But uh, his exact words to me was, Chris, the best case scenario, news is infotainment. Worst case scenario, it's propagandatainment. So if you think back to the 70s and 80s, we had somewhere around 400 independently owned news organizations in America. We now have four or five conglomerates that own 99% of the mainstream media. So they control the narrative. And I read a very interesting article this morning on Zero Hedge called, uh, I'm, let me look at my notes here, Crisis of the Now. So essentially the author was saying that we live in this perpetual news cycle that's focused on the crisis de jour, you know, the crisis of the day sort of thing. And I actually, I noticed that years ago because I made comments to people how we just lurch from one thing to another to another in the news cycle. And, and you know, a couple weeks later, it's like, man, you don't hear anything about, you know, this thing that got everybody riled up a couple weeks back. Point being is the gist of that article of the crisis of the now being pushed by this handful of conglomerates what that does is it keeps people's attention focused on what they want people's 
you know, attention focused on and they have zero awareness. We're back to situational awareness. You know, people don't know what they don't know. So, you know, Steve Jobs had a hundred plus black turtlenecks, a hundred plus matching pairs of jeans, socks, underwear, the whole nine yards. And the reason he did that is because the human brain has a finite amount of decision-making ability each day. So if you expend some of your bandwidth on looking in the closet and deciding what you're going to wear today, that's less bandwidth to make other decisions. So he wanted to reserve all of his uh, attention to things that he felt really important. So he got up every day, put the same black turtleneck on the same jeans and same socks and underwear and away he went. So I think that, you know, without getting too much into the conspiracy uh, theory world, that the people who control these media conglomerates, you know, they're extremely powerful and they feed us well, they feed the mainstream media and its audience, uh, you know, a diet of these constant crises. And by doing that, if you dig deeper, there's always something else going on. Right. So, you know, last week was uh, Donald Trump's going to be charged by the Southern District, New York Attorney General, um, Elvin Bragg. And meanwhile, there was all kinds of reports being released that somewhere around $30 million has been paid to the Biden family from Chinese companies, which got zero coverage, just like uh, the FBI after having Hunter Biden's laptop for a year and a half saying this is Russian disinformation. Um, people don't get to see the things you're discussing, the important stuff, because they have this finite attention span, finite ability to digest information. And this machine keeps them focused on whatever it is to keep their attention away from something that's going on over here. So um, this is another super deep rabbit hole. I mean, we, we could go down this one all day as well, um, sort of thing. But let, let's kind of fast forward to, to right now, this particular point in time and you know the the screen behind me um how did you end up uh with a tv show on american stories uh called surviving man uh, i've watched the first season twice uh mm-hmm. it's really engaging it's it's it reality tv is all scripted and i'm not saying that you guys had scripting or not, but it doesn't appear to be a lot of scripting. It appears to be like, you know, this person stepped up to the plate and competed in this and here's what happened sort of thing. Um, so give, maybe give us the background to American Stories TV and Surviving Man. Okay. And to, to begin with, I can say there's zero scripting in it. It's zero scripting. And, awesome. and thankfully the producer and the director, Bob C. Fail, who who's a mind, he, he, he created Surviving Man. Okay. And um, I've known Bob for many, many years. And um, and he said to me a few years ago, he said, I'd like to do a TV show. You've trained people to climb mountains. You've trained people to be SEALs. You've trained people to do all these races. You train people with shooting. Why don't you do a show with me and you can train people? I said, yeah, Bob, I'll do that. But that went on for a couple of years. We've really right. never got it going. Up until three years ago, he said, Remember that show I wanted you to do? Let's do it. And I want to call it Surviving Man. Then I was thinking, oh, I don't know about that title again. (laughs) But but anyways, um, I did come up with the scenario for the training. And Bob said, you you do the training. We'll do the director. We'll do the production. 
and you set on the train. And he gave me carte blanche to do what I wanted to do. Okay. He's a good friend of mine, and I respect him a lot. And the staff and the, the team he has put together is just incredible. And um, so, so initially, Bob wanted me to train all these highly skilled people and very, very fit people. And then for me to compete against the top person, I said, Bob, that'll be a short show because I cannot compete at that level anymore. And um, it would be too short of a show because I'd get beat so quickly. You know, I will do my best, but um, I can still shoot and move and run and do all that stuff, but not as quickly as I used to be able to do, not like the people we're going to get. So the first year we had 500 to 600 people apply for Surviving Man. And it was out in Vegas, gun sight, and uh, I'm sorry, front sight. And, um, and, and I changed the scenario. So we weren't going to be a competition with me against these people, but they came in, they had all these skills. They had to ensure that they can do, they were chosen. And then we had 32 people selected. And then I flew in and I met these 32 and I told them all, I said, you're here not to be on a reality TV show called surviving man. It's nothing like that. That was to get you here in this country. We needed some hardcore Americans who are fit and who can shoot and who have the right mindset because the storyline is we have a hostage situation. The U.S. doesn't want anything to do with uh, this hostage because he turned bad. And the U.S. government or the military didn't want anything to do with him. We needed some hardcore Americans who I can put through a quick selection course with PT, shooting, survival skills. And then we will form up a team and we're going to go rescue this guy before he gets executed at the end of the week. And that was the surviving man concept. And it worked out really, really well. We had these weapon sponsors. And just like at SEAL Team, we get these top weapon people come in and say, hey, try my weapon, try my weapon. You might want to use it in training and missions. So that's how we did the show. We had all these great weapon sponsors coming in. And we had them give us a demonstration of the weapons. We had our contestants try out the weapons. So we it was it was like it was real. It was real. We really did try out the weapons. We really did use the weapons on the mission. And it really was a a mission you would see in, in training. And um it worked out really, really well. I, I I'm very, very proud to be part of this show. And um, I'm looking forward to season three already. I have some really good ideas now for season three. So, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that those 32 individuals, there were some very elite people in there that came out of a pool of close to 600 people, correct? Yes, there were. I think the pool was somewhere between 500 and 600 people. And and some of them were incredibly, incredibly talented and skilled, like off the charts. People I would have liked to have seen in SEAL Team at one point. Yep. And some were, weren't, but most of them were. They all had something very, very unique or some skill or strength that w- they were selected for. So this is a special episode of Survival Dispatch News. Normally it airs at 4 p.m. Eastern time every Thursday, um, but we're recording this on a Thursday and it's going to air tomorrow on Friday, which is why we're calling it a special edition and today, the episode that's airing is a really interesting interview with Dr. Jennifer Stankus, who is on your show. And uh, 114 pounds, you know, two branches of the military, law enforcement, MD, 
attorney, expert witness, the list goes on and on. When Denny and I interviewed her, we got to the end and we were like, man, we're glad we don't have to compete against you. And this is this diminutive 114 pound woman. Um, you know, when you're talking about the skills that people had on the show, I, I'm thoroughly impressed with uh, Dr. Jennifer amongst the other ones as well. But she stands out because of, again, her diminutive size. Yeah, she is as fit as can be, as competitive as can be. She's a, she's a very good shot. She's so smart, a doctor and a lawyer. Yeah, she's everything that um, and and she's she's very motivation motivational too. When she's around other people, she motivates people, and she's just an all around great person and a great competitor. And we're happy to have her on the show. I, I just the thought just occurred to me. It's probably why her and Bob get along so well, because he's got this contagious enthusiasm. And of course, I don't know him near as well as you do, but he I love talking to him. That guy's just on fire all the time. I agree. Yeah, I've, I've known Bob, I think, 10 years now. Wow. I've never seen him down. He is always very, very up and motivated and doing some big project. So just to kind of wrap up uh, with a few things here quickly, as quickly as possible, but there's no you know hard timeline, is the purpose of Survival Dispatch is to disseminate information so that our fellow Americans not only survive in these uncertain times, but can actually thrive. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you're, you know, like a subject matter expert on steroids when it comes to survival and preparedness. So keep it in mind, you know, we have some um active duty military active duty law enforcement retired military uh, retired law enforcement in our audience but the vast majority of people you know in the survival dispatch nation don't have the benefit of professional training through those organizations is there a handful of things that you could impart to them uh, as far as survival uh, what skills they should be focusing on and preparedness and those sort of things well, thanks for saying that. But Chris, what you're doing is helping the public. I mean, and they can see what you're doing and go to your site. That's a, a really, really good start because that's a lot of information all at one location where people can get. And they can come right to your site and see this. But mindset, as we discussed, is the number one thing. You okay. have to have the mindset. It can't be something you put off. And then, of course, when we're going out in the jungle and the desert, urban um, wilderness, it doesn't matter. You do need the mindset. You need a shelter. You know, you have to have food and water. And then that gets broken down a little bit more. The shelter could be a lean-to. It could be a little cave. But you have to have a shelter. You should be off the ground for bugs and insects and things like that. And you have to be able to procure food if you're, you know, that might be in an urban environment. It might be easier if you're hiding out how to get food. But if you're out in the jungle or in the desert or somewhere else, you have to have an idea of where you are, know the area you're in, and what food's available, what plants and animals, are, what food's available. And then you have to know what's toxic and what's not toxic. For instance, you know, there's a lot of plants that look like you can eat them. And then if you eat them, you, could, you become poisonous, you know. So there's little ways to taste test them. Put them on your lip first. If there's no burning sensation or anything, then touch it on your tongue. If you're still okay after 15, 20 minutes, you could eat a little bit of it. And then that's how you do it. But these little, little tips um, are important to know. And it's not like at some point you're going to be yanked off and you're going to be in the Middle East. But if you know you're going to the Middle East, understand what's in that AO, that area of operation. 
what type of food and water sources are available. Water, you need water, of course. <clears throat> and um, you might have to know how to filter water, maybe from charcoal from a fire, or maybe from rocks, or maybe just have little chlorine tablets. <clears throat> if you have the ability to boil it, all the better. But you do need water, but you need shelter, you need food, you need water. You have to know how to get to where you're going. You have to know how to navigate. And my little grandson was doing map and compass training with him last week. He's eight years old. And That's he awesome. can tell you where northeast, south, and west is. He can tell you where the sun sets, where it rises, where the moon rises, where the moon sets. He could tell you all that. We'll walk down a trail and I'll say, see the shadow of that tree? Where's west? And he's eight. And that was one hour lesson. And he can do it. And it was fun for him. And um, But you do have to know how to navigate. Then there's a big question. Okay, if I'm in a car crash or if I'm stranded out in a cabin or if I was out hunting and I got lost or I was hiking with my boyfriend or girlfriend and I got lost, what do I do? Do I stay in a shelter? Do I stay there? Or do you go look for help? And these things, um, there's not an easy answer for any of them. You know, a plane crash is a big, big example. If you happen to be in a crash and you survive a plane crash, or a boating accident and you're stranded, do you stay there or you go look for help? So there's a lot that goes into this. And you also have to be prepared to defend yourself. You may or may not have a weapon. Um, you could make a weapon. I mean, if I was out living in the woods and I was stuck out there, and I know there's there are bears out there, there's mountain lions out there, and I didn't have a weapon and I was wounded, I couldn't move, I know I would have a rock that I can hold in my hand that I can hold as a weapon. I would come up with something. So shelter, food, water, the ability to navigate and um, know what's there for food and water sources, know what's toxic, what's not toxic, and to have a weapon. And also you should really know emergency medicine. You know, if you're with somebody and somebody's hurt, you know, tactical combat casualty care has taken over and the scene has to be safe. That means before I can help this person, if he fell through some frozen ice, I can't go in that frozen ice because that scene is not safe. Yeah. If there's a terrible car crash and I'm going down the road and I see this crash, I'm not going to pull the people out on the road and treat them on the road because the scene is not safe. If my position's being shot at, I'm not going to stay in place. I'm going to go behind a wheel well or an engine block or a building and make the scene safe before I can help somebody. So tactical combat casualty care or Red Cross or American Heart, A, B, C, D, E, it's really the same things, just in different order. Where the scene has to be safe, then you have to make sure the person's hurt, has an airway, they're breathing, circulation, that they're not bleeding out. You have to stop that bleeding. And TCC is just a little different. They'll put a tourniquet on right away, but stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding, look for head injury, and then um, you have to get help. And even it sounds like I said a lot, that, that's really just fun training, and it helps. And, and, um, and I teach this for the government. I teach it all the time, actually. I've never stopped teaching it since I've learned it. And so many times in sports and in military and in government, People have needed this information, but people need it in their homes, too. And with the ever-increasing threat, why not learn it? It's fun. It's a fun skill set, you know. 
And um, and there's all types of uh, training camps you can go to and everything, but to learn to build shelters. Actually, we'll be uh, doing that. I'll be going out in the desert with a, a government group, and we're going to build shelters. We're going to be trapping food. We're going to be fishing food. They're going to eat what they catch. We're going to do land navigation, and we're going to do a lot of survival skills, and um, we do that every year. And it's it's just they love it, and it's out of their their comfort zone. That's not what they're used to doing. And if they're getting ready to deploy someplace in the world, I'll know that area. And I study up on that area and what plants and food and animals are in that area, what the threat is. There is a threat. In our country, there's a lot of threats in the cities, you know, in other places too. But to, to me, the city is filled with threats nowadays. That couldn't agree more. We we polled our audience recently, actually, on what they wanted to see more of. And urban survival was top of the list. Mm-hmm. 83% of Americans live in cities. Um, there's no bugging out. They don't have anywhere to bug out to sort of thing. They're bugging in, you know, they got to get home after catastrophe. So I, I agree, but I had that perspective beforehand, but just because I think something doesn't mean that it's, you know, in agreement with what our audience wants. And so, like I said, that was really telling though, believe it or not, primitive survival was like 14%. And, uh, the, the second one was, uh, survival in a remote location with modern amenities you know like all the modern tools that we have and uh, that was number two but over well over 50 percent of people said urban survival they'd want to know more on i can see that for sure i can see why people would vote that way yeah it's a really interesting subject so uh this special episode of survival dispatch news is going to air on friday march 31st and people can go to uh, the American Stories TV website. We'll put links down below and sign up for free for the insider group. And they can get a, a advanced screening of uh, the first episode of Surviving Man Season 2, which we watched last night at the watch party. It was fantastic. And if people don't have a chance to do that, uh, general availability will be tomorrow, which will be Saturday, April 1st. Uh, they can go check it out live streaming. Um, one last question: What's next for Don Man? Boy, what's next? Uh, so, um, I'm looking forward to doing more survival um, training with the government. Uh, survival training, I really, really enjoy that. I look forward to more uh, surviving man shows and the All Star shows, and going to different locations and working with different people. Um, there are 54, 14,000 footers in Colorado, 14,000, uh, 14, actually I have the picture right here, there's 54 of them, there's 54 mountains in Colorado over 14,000 feet, Unreal. and I plan on climbing them all, I've done 20 of them, so I have 34 to go, <laughs> and, um, <Right> on. <laughs> And I like doing those. I like to go up fast and run down. I, I did get hurt on Everest a couple of years ago. I was climbing Everest, Mount Everest, and my uh, brain cavity filled with fluid and my lungs filled with fluid. So I got high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema. Holy cow. Lost a lot of my memory and I a lot of lung function. And that was about five years ago, but it's coming back. It's all coming back. So now doing these mountains, these you know 14,000 footers, it, they seem a lot harder than they used to. So it's a challenge. And um, 
one day I made a resolution to work out every day of the year. And the next year I did it again. I went, I went over 20 years working out every day of the year. That's and amazing. I'm back on track for doing that again. I don't take days off. And I love it that way. You know, everyone says, oh, muscles need time to rebuild. But some, like yesterday, I went for a run in the mountains. And uh, some days I'll just go in my gym. And some days I'll go for a gravel bike ride or a mountain bike ride or a road bike ride or a paddle. But I just do something physical every day. And and I I know you know this better than anybody, but I find the people who who start thinking, oh, I'm getting too old, I'm getting too lazy, I don't feel like doing that. So many people are slowing down too early in life when there's so much more life to go. And um, I have no, no plans on slowing down at all, ever. And actually, when it's my last day on this earth, I want everything totally worn out. I plan on having all body parts <laughs> totally worn out. Yeah. And if something starts not working anymore, I'll do things where I don't need that part of my body. Uh, so I, I have zero plans on slowing down. I, I love the life I lead. And I mean, that, that's just awesome, Don. And, uh, yeah. you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but really appreciating you coming, coming on Survival Dispatch News uh, and really appreciate your service to our country. Uh, hopefully we get another chance uh, to do this again at some point in the future. But thank you, Don. I hope so, too. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And I, I hope all the viewers uh, really take what you're doing seriously, because what you're doing is so important. And thank you for doing what you're doing. 